Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stammel Major. In this episode, we're continuing with John Caldwell's book, Desperate Voyage, and we're on chapter 9. Chapter 9 Malpello Isle. Those first nine days, I figured my speed by approximation. Each evening, I plotted an estimated position on the chart. It was marvellous the distance I had covered. The water was sweeping beneath the keel at a rate of at least seven knots, I figured. According to my dead reckoning, I was hard by the Galapagos, but was I? I wondered. Someone in Panama had said, don't go to Galapagos by dead reckoning, it's suicide. I was beginning to get uneasy the day I tried my first sextant shot. It was a shoddy affair. I spent the day capturing the shifty sun in terms of an angle and working out a questionable noon sight from a maze of figures. Late that evening, after juggling ciphers and sights all afternoon, I arrived at a position which put me somewhere inland in central Panama. I gave up for the night. On the next two days, I arrived at consistent figures. But what figures? My wearisome computations, no matter what number of times I checked and rechecked them, came up always with the same result. They placed me only some 350 bare miles from Panama. The figures said I was near a barren, isolated rock called Mulpello Isle. I refused to believe the figures. I stuck with my dead reckoning estimate, which put me some 900 miles from Panama. But as the morning wore on, I rechecked the figures. Unfailingly, they established me as somewhere near Malpello. Finally, I scaled the mast and searched the horizon and saw nothing more than the monotonous sea. It was dirty in the southwest. A hazy curtain hung over the water. There were birds around and they led me to believe land was near. But there couldn't be land. The Galapagos were a day away, unless, unless it could be Malpello. Then as midday rolled around from out of the sea, eased the loom of land. Dead ahead, the crag floated, about ten miles off, barren, solitary, unmistakable. This meeting of boats and sea-swept rock out on the pathless ocean came as sort of a miracle to me. For eleven days I had sailed and searched and had lifted no more than a steamer's smoke. Then suddenly, figurings and jottings on a squared sheet of paper said land would raise itself across the bows now, and it did. The land was before me in the form of an indistinct blob of rock, small and frothed at its base, where the sea charged. Seeing it there brought a flood of relief. Navigation suddenly became a game of fun. All the uncertainty I had felt over it glimmered, and I quickly looked upon it as simple, where for years I had fidgeted in awe at the mere thought of it. Before I bought Pagan, I used to think one had to know differential calculus to navigate a peanut across a dishpan. Two, I had looked at Bowditch, Dutton and Kugels and walked away blubbering to myself in a navigational fog. That's the way it was when I first went aboard Pagan. In the front of my mind was the prospective trip out into the sea and in the back, haunting me, was my ignorance of navigation. The devil of it was, while in port before I sailed, I hadn't a spare hour to study it. The whole two weeks I owned Pagan. I had such a high respect for its complexities that I didn't want to put forth from Panama knowing the little I did of it, which was only visual pilotage from flying. But what could I do? Time was against me. I had to get across the Pacific before the hurricane season set in over the Coral and Tasman Seas. There was no time, as I saw it, to attend a fortnight of navigation school. 
the moment cried that I go. When I sailed, I had exactly this navigational equipment aboard. One sextant given to me by Captain Baverstock of the Balboa, a pocket watch exceedingly reliable, a cheap compass that came with the boat, a hand lead line, a copy of Bowditch given to me though I didn't need it, I used it once to light my primus stove, a copy of Warwick Tompkins the offshore navigator for $1.50 and worth its weight in gold, a copy of hydrographic office publication number 211, 90 cents, a small cardboard protractor, 10 cents, a six inch rule, 10 cents, good charts of likely island groups along the way, $4, sailing directions and light lists for the waters I was to cross, $2.30, total cost, $8.90. If you will navigate, take what is listed here and sail away. When, after 10 days of studying stars, you can't fix your position, turn back and take up harbour sailing, for you will never navigate. Any sensible person who can see the sun or horizon plainly can use those tools to go around the world. To me, Malpello meant nothing. I was not on a sightseeing trip, but if I had been, I would not have come there for scenery. The isle is so wind, rain and sea swept that not even the guano from its host of birds will cling to it. Around its base are a few tooth-like rocks, otherwise it is sheer and uninviting. I was glad to see it for what it meant to me as a check on my navigation, but it was a setback to learn that in 11 days I had traversed only some 350 miles. I laid my slow progress to inexperience and the host of frustrating weather conditions which had beset me. Also, there was no certainty regarding the speed and exact set of the currents, but the main factor in my poor showing was the loss of the engine. The use of an engine in a calm even for an hour, can often move the craft into an area of wind. By nightfall, I had made a good offing from Malpello into the south, but a little later, it fell calm. I dropped the main to avoid hearing it slat aimlessly and went below for the night. At daylight of the 30th, I found that the current during the night had pulled me off to the northeast of Malpello. The calm still held, and I fished from the deck to while away the time till a bold young breeze should whip me past the lonely rock for the second time. Around mid-morning, a lusty breeze sprang up. I stood away to the west till I cleared Malpello, then shoved around to south and beat away toward the equator. Through the afternoon, I bounded into a making wind till at nightfall I was deeply reefed and ready to heave to. Malpello was far behind. In the face of a line squall, I doused the main and put her in stops and heaved to for a stormy night. Before I went below, out of the weather, I had what I thought to be a last look at Malpello. Dawn came, with rain pelting the cabin like birdshot. I got up to as morbid a bit of weather as I have ever seen. Visibility was nil, the wind high, a lump of sea running. It was a day of perpetual dusk, not even the ubiquitous seabirds were out. I didn't dare put up a stitch of cloth, I stayed below. Though I couldn't see it, I knew the deformed island was somewhere near. For three days now I had been in its vicinity and I grew sober whenever I thought of my helplessness before the weather. At noon, sea and air were still unchanged except that off to starboard I could catch the recurrent hollow boom of pounding seas. At first I thought a ship was somewhere about, but there was no blast of a foghorn. After a while I realised I was falling back before the storm past Malpello. Deep in the night, the winds abated. 
I climbed out of the warm sack and showed on deck. Stars blinked in patches and the sea was still rolling in heavily. The air was both bold and weak as it is in moments of change, but it looked as if some sail could stand. I tied a reef into the mainsail and ran her up. In a few hours, I passed Malpalo for the third time, looking grey in the early dawn. The breeze freshened as the sun climbed. Late in the morning, I tied in the last reefs and pulled down the jib. In the early afternoon, the wind veered to a little north of west, and a heavy swell set in from the south. Shortly, cross seas were at work, and Pagan was rolling and yawing wildly. Malpello hid herself in the falling clouds. By dark, I was hove to properly. The cats were tottering weakly on the bunk with mal de mer. I tucked their drooping little bodies close by me where they would be warm and made them feel in their misery that they had an understanding friend. The wind was backing slowly to its wanted position. Cross seas were worsening. Above the noise of wind in the rigging and rumbling of sea crests, I could hear occasional proofs of seas breaking on Malpello. Long after I had bedded down, I was awakened by the nearer crash of seas on a shore. I knew before I uncovered myself that it was Malpello. Damn this island! Wouldn't I ever get past it? On deck, I reached with eye and ear into the wet night of drizzle and made the crash and hiss of the surf dead astern, more or less. I couldn't risk falling back farther, so I strung up the staysail to see if Pagan could stand off a lee shore. In an hour, the roar was louder. It was no longer difficult to hear or make out its bearing. Pagan could hold her own with the wind, but it was the current that was sucking her back. I reefed the staysail and put up the double reef main. For the remainder of the night, she held her own. At daylight, five days after sighting the island, I found Mulpello leering at me a hundred yards downwind, and the wind was stiffening. She was directly in my wake and reaching closer with each squall and gust. I was gravely in need of the engine. A scathing wind was on. Pagan had no business with sail-up. Still, I didn't dare take in a stitch. At times, it looked as though she might ride clear of the isle if I should drop sail and let her drift. I was tempted to back her around and risk clearing the island by running before the wind, but in such a sea I was afraid of being broached too by veering too sharply into the wind or pooped by shipping a wave over the stern. With Pagan's cockpit still not fully repaired from the battle with the shark, I didn't dare hazard it. The more I watched the jagged spire, the more ominous it became. A cold wind swept the clouds from the air. The blue dome of the sky, across which a cool sun worked up to the high noon, looked down over me as I grew furrowed at the brow. There was no need for a noon sight. My exact position was impressed on me by every minute. I could easily have tossed a sea biscuit into the closest rocks. The roar quite suddenly grew deafening. It's a wonder Malpello isn't toppled right over by force of driving seas, so greatly do they slam against her. I slipped as close by her weather-worn sides as I dared, still hoping the wind would abate or that Pagan would work away. At this juncture, I did the only thing I could possibly have done, but first I pushed my little pneumatic life raft off the foredeck and led it aft to secure it to the bumpkin, in readiness against the moment I might need it. I tied the cork blocks to flotsam and jetsam and stuck them in a corner of the cockpit. Then, knife in hand, I cut the lashings and reef points away along the boom, freeing the sail and jerked the strained canvas hastily up. It filled and Pagan shivered. The lee rail went under the sea and a froth swelled against the deck house. I jumped to the tiller and pointed Pagan as far off the wind as I could without broaching her too. 
She heeled more steeply and the rudder kicked. She breasted each sea jerkily, holding the tiller was great work. Huge lumps of sea bombarded the windward rail. Spray landed on the cliff face, close abeam. I knew the sail wouldn't hold long, but a few minutes sailing would drive me far enough to clear the rocks. If the sail flew out at the seams right away, I had only one resort, the rubber raft. Flotsam and Jetsam were unmindful of my weighted concerns. They sat close together like a furry ball looking calmly ahead. In five minutes, I peered downwind and thought that even then I could clear the aisle. Then the slides ripped from the luff of the sail. They screeched and the sail pounded at loose ends. I shoved the tiller down. Pagan rounded too into the wind and fell before it. I knew she would pass close to the rocks if she passed at all, and close it was. Spray from the battered stone fell over us. It reminded me of Ponte de Cocos. Flotsam and Jepsam shivered and crawled up to my lap. The same night I drifted far to the north-eastward of Malpello. At dawn, the wind was still high, a lumpy sea was still rolling, and Pagan, under staysail and jib, was hove to far to leeward of the horny rock. Overhead was the clearest sky I have seen on the Pacific. Not a cloud showed, only a depthless blue. A fierce, unvarying wind blew the full day, driving cresting seas onto the decks. I was seated in the chill cabin at work with palm and needle on the tattered mainsail. She had pulled loose at the seams and had frayed a bit at the ends. Here and there was a rip which demanded a little attention. I noted that only the seams sewed by machine had split. Those which I had stitched in at San Jose were still good. As I worked, I thought, why go on fighting uselessly against the fitful winds overhead and the redheads and blondes at loggerheads with the keel? Six days on one small field of water. I was for turning back to Panama for a rest and repairs and a new start. The more I thought of doing it, the more sensible it sounded. Then my wicked intuition lulled me, telling me the trade winds were hard by and coaxing me to push on. Mug that I am, I listened. Late in the afternoon I completed the job and spent the time to dusk fretting before a porthole. Through the night the wind held and only with the dawn did it moderate to where I could put on the sails and start the long beat into the wind towards Malpello for the fourth time. All morning I worked sail and tiller. At noon I was close by the rock. Throughout the afternoon I sailed under a halcyon sky hoping the friendly wind would hold till the night. I was beginning to think of Malpello as a jinx. If only I could pass out of sight of her once, my troubles would be over. As I passed her, I stood at the shrouds and loathed the sight of her horn-like crags in the belated twilight. At ten o'clock, with wind still holding fair, I tied the proper angle on the rudder and called it a day. For the first few hours of the next morning, I could see a tuft of rock on the horizon astern. What an unburdening it was to imagine not seeing that grotesque shape again. Late in the forenoon, I saw again what I had not seen for eight tiring days, a landless expense of sea. Chapter 10. Navigation For the next few days, there were equable breezes. Old Phoebus came out from his grizzled curtain and washed the sea warmly. It was wonderful to be on deck all day, no line squalls, no nightly gales, no ladies' winds. I made strange entries in the log these days, something about blue skies, sunny days, warm tropical nights. I was able in those few soft days to put the finishing touches to the deck work on the stern. I lengthened the cockpit by eliminating the lazarette so that it extended to the rudder stock, making it capacious enough, if need be, to sleep in. 
Since the engine was now ballast, I lashed it down to its bed and extended the forepark of the cockpit right up to the hatchway. When I completed all, the stern was infinitely altered. From the lazarette to the hatchway, it was one long roomy cockpit. The shark had slammed away the sliding hatchway door, and since then I had done with a towel tacked over the opening, which I untacked each time I came out from below. This too I repaired. I built in a pair of small swinging doors which opened outward and which, so I thought in my boundless confidence, were a vast improvement over the thick, heavy sliding door. Between the engine compartment and the main cabin, I installed a watertight bulkhead. This I had wanted to do before leaving Panama, but couldn't spare the time. The watertight bulkhead afforded the degree of safety I had long wanted. I am thankful I built it as sturdily as I did. It saved my life. In only a few days after leaving Malpelo, all the deck work was finished. There was time to be devoted to the cats, to fishing, and to perfecting my navigation. Navigation was done wholly by the sun. On several occasions I experimented with the moon and stars, obtaining a dusk or dawn fix with simultaneous sextant readings on two bodies. In the end I found it needless work, and stuck to the simple sun method. The slow speed was ideal for navigation totally by sun. I soon narrowed my daily navigation down to less than an hour's work. At noon I took what is called a noon sight or meridian altitude of the sun. This established my latitude or distance north or south of the equator. I used only the sextant with a few figures added and subtracted to come to a hastily accurate computation. In the afternoon, about 3.30 or 4, I took a shot of the sun. From its altitude I quickly and easily, as explained by Mr. Tompkins in the offshore navigator, determined a line of position at some point on which I was located. Simply by estimating my latitude according to distance and direction travelled from noon and applying it to the line, I had my position. Anybody can do it. To determine my speed, I used my lifeline as log line. To the end of it, I connected my bucket. Tossing it over, I set off the second hand of my navigating watch and stopped it when the line grew taut. If it took 10 seconds, for instance, it was a matter of going 60 feet every 10 seconds. By simple multiplication and division, I could soon ascertain my hourly knottage. But the exactness of such a calculation would depend on a steady wind. Since I was interested in a close approximation of my speed between noon and 4 o'clock, I usually tossed the bucket over several times and took an average of the results. As a rule, I made a point of calculating my position each day. But if I was having a good time watching the cats or had a fish on the line, I overlooked navigation occasionally. Around the middle of the morning each day, I caught my eager cats their rations. I used my large sport reel mounted on a strip bamboo pole. Despite a limited assortment of flies to choose from, I rarely found it difficult to please the mood of the fish. My fishing equipment, aside from my sport reel, consisted chiefly of a fishing kit which came with my little rubber raft. I had a dozen hooks ranging in size from very small to large enough to catch a dolphin. There were two hand lines, a large white fly, several leaders and two kinds of bait. I also had the three angling items I purchased in Panama, a large spinner for sharks and two smaller flies for red snappers and yellow jacks. In these waters, rich with fish, one doesn't have to lure catches. Often I made them with nothing more than a piece of cloth for bait. As a rule, I could take a delicacy from the water in an hour's trolling, or, if caught in a calm, in only a dozen casts. Then the fun would begin, as my impetus sea mates tackled the catch. They brightened my day as they charged and countercharged their flapping victims. 
What hilarious wrestling matches I have seen on Pagan's decks. I've seen my doughty cacks tackle everything from three-inch flying fishes to a nine-foot marlin with equally heedless ferocity. A thousand times I've seen them hightail it to the bow after a severe drubbing. In a moment, they would marshal their forces and with a technique that never varied yet never grew dull to watch, they would slink soft-footed and fierce-eyed back to the tiny war. After gorging themselves, if the weather was favourable, they often curled up behind my homemade anchor on the bow. Sometimes they slept in the shade of the lee waist, or if the sails were furled, they climbed into the folds of the staysail or the main. All afternoon they made pilgrimages back to the catch, thus fulfilling what ordinary house and alley cats spend a lifetime dreaming of. Though flotsam and jetsam often had to tolerate the horrendous emergencies of sea life, all in all, I'm sure they wouldn't have missed the trip for a ton of mice. It was about this time that I noticed in Pagan's wake a small school of a dozen dolphin, blunt-headed, sleekly designed and wily. I must have picked them up at Malpello. Every day they were idling along in the shadow of the keel or shooting out ahead of the bows, preying on the hapless flying fish or the silvery shoals of small fry. I was glad of their company and often tossed them bits of fish scraps from my catchings. They spurted hurriedly to the scraps but remained stolid and unmoved if anything hinting of a hook showed. However, one, a little dumber than the rest, succumbed to a fly one morning. I'll never forget the morning I caught him. I had heard the fishermen describe mahi-mahi, the dolphin, in their death throes, but I felt their imaginations had inflated what they had seen. When I pulled my first mahi-mahi from the deeps, I saw something truly amazing. He lay there quivering and gasping deeply as I unrooted the hook. Then I saw what the fishers had told me of. Instantly, his ordinarily blue-greenish colour changed to blue in a shimmering wave like grain fields before the wind, then ranged between the hues of purple and gold to greenish-brown, grey-brown, silvery, and finally to a startling silver, spotted with blue. Then came an abrupt reversion to his familiar pastel shade. The greatest fun of fishing these waters was that I rarely caught the same species twice. Sport varied with each catch. Sometimes I caught Spanish mackerel, albacore, tuna, wahoo and several species I was unable to identify. These waters from Panama to Galapagos are the richest sport fishing grounds in the world. They literally teem with fish. Long ribbons of birds pounding tirelessly into the water on every hand testify to the abundance with which they are sustained. On the surface there floated small brownish jellyfish trailing a brown string-like tail. There were white, dollar-sized organisms floating in myriads. Several varieties of seaweed showed up. Avenues of fish eggs from horizon to horizon, keel-deep and wide as pagan, fed the fish and gave birth to fish, which would be food for fish and yet would prey on other fish. Life and death battles that I saw every day. In a handful of the water itself were dust-like particles of infinitesimal life on which shifting schools of fish, looking like sunken reefs, fed themselves. Harassing the frantic shoals of fish were packs of wolfish sharks, schools of picturesque dolphin and the seabirds. Every few days a great sea bat would shoot up from the depths, make a full turn and land flat with a trenchant resound. Occasionally a shark would bump against the keel, sending me on deck with my knife lashed to an oar end, or schools of porpoise would frolic before the bow. Often I saw the geezers of whales, and once I caught a glimpse of the tall, sharp black fin of the brute killer whale slicing the water. One morning, a sun-heavy soughing noise startled me of my daydreaming. 
Looking off over the bows, I saw a great round hump, like a ship's keel about fifty yards ahead. It was a huge whale lazing on the surface. The bluff of Pagan's onrush must have frightened him. Quite gruffly, he flourished his great body in a sharp twist, and pounding the water with his wide, glistening tail, he plumbed. Pagan breasted the wave of water he sent off. As we passed over the spot, I stared into the greenness, and there he was, like something out of Moby Dick, moving in giant spirals, trailing a heavy wake of churning water and bubbles, plunging into the vast, deeper darkness. Late one afternoon, I sighted the spouts of three small whales sporting on the horizon. How many times had I seen whales similarly on merchant ships? My stolid old captains had seen them too, but to be a captain one must be lost to the world of nature and resigned to a world of tear and trat. How often I had wished I was in charge of the helm, I would have visited every puzzle of the seam. So it was only natural that I should come about and run amidst the cavorting pack. Two of them plunged when I was the length of the boat away, the other, bolder, hung on. I didn't know he was asleep. I pressed the tiller down and swung up. Pagan cast a shadow over him, and then the bow nicked him a side blow. The sails rustled from the soft shock. In the terror of sudden awakening, he whipped out with his great fluke, flipping a dollop of green seas over the rail into my teeth. The round head grew suddenly from the lava, and a snort of spray blew out of it. Then it plunged and another wave spilled into the cockpit up to my knees. Behind the stern, as I pulled away, a widening white circle eddied and shifted across the wake. Later, I saw other whales, but I didn't investigate. Another morning, I hooked onto a splendid swordfish, and a tiff of two hours wherein I saw every antic the sleek swordsman of the deep could contrive. I wound him into the rail. I left him gaffed at the scupper with the grappling hook, till I was certain he was good and dead. Then I hauled him into the boards and looked over him in detail and made a sketch of him for the log. From his bony falcian right back to his powerful tail, which gave him the superb speed and burst of spirit unequalled, he was a study in streamline. He was the only swordfish I caught, but after such sport, he'll not be my last. After dissecting him and probing among his vitals, I cut myself a sizable stake and a tidbit for the cats. As an afterthought, I sawed off his sword, dorsal fin and tail. The sword I nailed to the bowsprit end. I tacked the dorsal fin atop the cabin and nailed the flared tail to the bumpkin. Salty old sea dogs have said this keeps a sailor up in his luck. For three days, following my weathering of Malpello, blue skies and fair winds held. I reeled off an average of 45 miles a day. In the log, I made happy entries. Considering that I had no engine, that contrary currents were opposing me, that the wind almost hourly died completely for a few minutes, that I was hove down about eight hours each night, I was doing well. Gradually, I nibbled away at the distance. Sometimes I grew unfathomably discouraged. Hard, wet ropes, inclement, capricious weather, the small, wearisome reef points, but most of all, the desire to go faster made me gloomy. And when gloom smote me hard and the sea miles wore me down, I went below and with my dainty crew in my lap, found solace reading from among the worn letters I had received from Mary during our long separation. They chased the gloom and the wornness and inspired me to patience. But always there was the pleasant thought of the southeastern trades. When I get to the trades, it'll all be different, was my hope. I imagined wind abaft the beam, steady, dependable wind and seas running with me. No squalls, no opposing currents. I was creating a roseate paradise for myself down in the trade winds. 
It was that that kept me going south. The three days' respite from foul weather south of Malpalo was like a reprieve, but soon, as though these waters were taking a final crack at me before I should go dancing away from them before the trades, a thoroughly familiar weather pattern set in. There were two or three squalls a day, gale winds at dusk, and early morning calms. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to spartanoceanracing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.